reason number one why your marriage as a Christian may break. Here's reason number one. It's everything that we all know. It's ignorance of God's will. I'm amazed and so are you that a lot of what we have said between Saturday and yesterday is new to most of us. Eh? Okay. You see why I prefer the two of you to in the front? Because you encourage me. Everyone is looking down. Can I repeat myself again? There are many reasons why your marriage may fail. But I have decided that every other thing that happens to our marriage, if they fail, boils down to four reasons. And so I'm saying you must look at your own marriage and look at the, the four reasons that I'm going to give you. And assess that, is it possible that your marriage is where it is because of those four reasons? Ne? And so I'm saying reason number one, a Christian marriage will fail. It's ignorance of God's will about marriage. And I'm saying from Saturday to yesterday, it, it, it baffles me as much as it baffles you that a lot of what we said on Saturday and yesterday was new to most of us. And most of us have been married for longer than a year. So clearly, ignorance has been the cause in our marriage to some extent. Somebody asked, told me that I have never heard covenant being spoken of before. How many of us have had never heard covenant being spoken of? Marriage. Quite a number of us. Uh, you know, he's a man, you know. And so, here's the thing, Bazalan. The reality is, today we're going to read a lot of scriptures that basically talk about marriage. And we will assess on the basis of that how far does ignorance play part in how our marriages have turned out. So that's number one, ignorance of God's will about marriage. Number two, it's disobedience to God. A lot of us don't have ignorance. Every other form of life has instructions that undergird it. And so every one of us here, when you crossed the line, it's not because you did not know. Again. And so there is a level of disobedience, willingful, that we all engage in. And somebody was preaching in church one day and he said, what would you do if you had inside information about what is to happen and how to avoid it and how to have the best life. And that information was at your disposal. What would you do? And everybody was happy. I would use it. And he came short of saying, now this is what I would have said if I was him. 
I would have said, so lift your Bible if you have one. How come you are still the way you are? So chances are it's not because you don't read your Bible. It's because most Christians, over 75% of Christians don't read the Bible to live it. I don't mean live it as in Uishi, but Uishi. Most of us want to quote the Bible, not to be shaped by it. And so a lot of us here, if we can talk about grudges, you know there is a scripture that addresses grudges. So all of us, from primary school, we have done what we have termed the Lord's Prayer, haven't we? And we have read and have prayed where it says, forgive us. We know different versions. Forgive us our trespasses. Forgive us our debts as we forgive them that also trespass against us. As we forgive those that have debt against us. You know all that. But you know where it ends? That very part, it says, for if you do not forgive others, your Father in heaven will not forgive so, in essence, one person is ignorant about the fact that if in marriage they do not forgive each other, or rather they need to forgive each other. And if they don't, the party that is not forgiving is tempting God or provoking God not to forgive him or her. So that would be ignorance, right? But... A person like you and me already knows. So they know that I must forgive. And if I don't forgive, the Father will not forgive me. But guess the path that I choose? Disobedience. I will not forgive. They must feel it. I felt it. That's number two. Remember I said the reasons I have categorized every other reason into those four. Ne? Where now you have to assess why your marriage is there. Could it be the reason why your marriage is at that point? The next one is immaturity or flawed character. This phrase, I have used it many times, that most marriages fail where characters are flawed. So your marriage breaks because of your flawed character. And so here's a question. How many of us are aware that we say my partner is not perfect? It's true, right? So what can help you live with a person you know? Not only is the person imperfect, but their imperfection can drive you to hell. Ah, you, need a, you need a stronger character. So you need to be a solid person. You need, you need to have grown. You need to be mature. So the Bible says, it's speaking in Proverbs, it says, anger dwells on the lap of fools. But it is the wisdom of the wise to overlook an offense. Isn't that amazing? That the Bible says the wise are able to look at an offense and actually say, 
Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. But the flawed, the Bible says, they cry, justice, justice. They want vengeance. And so a flawed character says, I deserve my right to justice. Unfortunately, if you read the first book of Corinthians, chapter 6, it says, why is there a lawsuit amongst you as Christians? It says, because you behave like babies. And the reason you behave like babies is because you all want your rights to be met. And so Paul says, instead of being wronged, you would rather wrong others. So if they step you, you want to revenge on, for two things. You stepped on me and it was painful. So I must step on you and step you even more painful. So the Bible says you are immature. So clearly, we, most of us have done what we should teach young people not to do. And I'm trusting that after all the four weeks, we can teach young people that marriage is a world of the mature. The immature must not enter. If they do, they do so at their own risk. Because like I said yesterday, it is the only place where your ability to forgive will be stretched to the core. The only place where if you are hurt, you will be hurt deeper than any other hurt. And so here's the last reason why your marriage may fail. Carnality. Carnality is living by the flesh. It is fulfilling your desires. So in a sense, the Bible says, he who sows in the flesh will reap out of the flesh death. You all understand that? So which means there are people who are married. And in their marriage, this thing called the flesh calls the shots. And remember where we read last the day before yesterday, or was it yesterday? It was yesterday where we read about the flesh. That if you fulfill the desires of the flesh, clearly you cannot walk in the spirit. If you walk in the spirit, you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. And so here's the thing. Let me ask you a question. And, and do not stress your mind much, but ask yourself, what makes a person thinks, think, rather that it is way proper to sit and watch pornography the whole time. Got to listen to it. But see, that's exactly our downfall. Carnality, the Bible says, do not love the world, for everything in the world is enmity towards God. And then it says what? The last of the eyes. Don't we love looking? Don't we love reading? 
the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. All of that constitutes what we call carnality. Which means if I, 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 I'm at the point where I am proud about what I have done and who I am, and I, I'm already walking in carnality. And you must realize that everyone who's carnal uses either pride or self-defense mechanisms to get their way through. So if I, I am carnal, my ego precedes every other thing. So, carnality says, the pride of life teaches me not to say sorry. Because I am proud. That's the one extreme. The other extreme, carnality says, life revolves around me. And have you realized that most of us, our marriages have to revolve around it's not covenantal. It's not us. It's. Have you realized that when you fight, often it's because you feel you are the one wronged? And this person has no right to wrong such an important person as me. You all understand that? And what do you then do? The room that you open is not for reconciliation but for vengeance. Because vengeance says the last word is mine. And so if I have done what I deem necessary to revenge the pain you have caused me, then there is justice. Then we can talk about reconciliation. But you are not aware that abuse begets abuse. If one is hurt, hurting people hurt others. Because hurting people always put defense mechanism. If you try something, they are always on, up in arms. So what are you up to? Are you all following? And so I want you to think about yourself. That in the context of your marriage, are you still ignorant about what God expects of you? If you are not ignorant, are you willingly disobedient? If not... Is your character that flawed? You know, most of us love Christianity, but are not really Christian. Remember I spoke about Christian sinners. Most of us, Christianity is not a lifestyle. It's an alternative lifestyle. It's a philosophy. And that is why guys like Karl Marx, they say, no, it's the opium of the people. People use it as a drug to give them a high to cope. Not to live. And so for most of us, because it's a drug, it is something that you do to feel good. But when the chips are down, it cannot help you. Are you still there, saying? So today I want us to look at the practice of marriage. We are going to, do, to look at two important aspects of that. We look at the values of marriage and the roles in marriage. Is that okay? So we're going to read a few things. As we read 1, 
so that I don't have to expound on anything. I want you to be listening to the extent marriage goes. Ne? Two, I want you to listen to the roles of husbands and wives as defined by the Bible. Remember, we are doing the theology of marriage. So this time we are talking only about what the Bible says. Not about other things. Those other things we will include as we go on. All the strategies we have learned. So let's start in the book of Mark chapter 12. And if you uh, if we have another mic, maybe someone can help me to read. We'll start from Mark chapter 12. And you can go to Mark chapter 10 as well. Okay. So I'll read Mark chapter 12. And then, and you'll read Mark chapter 10. We will start it from... Verse 2 to verse 12. In Mark chapter 12, I'm reading from verse 20. Are we all there? It says, Okay, let me take it from verse 18. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. You do realize that this is still part of our culture. Okay, like it. Now you must, so Jesus is also addressing that issue just in case. They are asking you, you marry your husband's brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? So Jesus says, your question emanates from what? Ignorance. He says, when the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses in the account of the bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are badly mistaken. So here, we start, today we're going to start with the extent, but as we continue, don't worry, your fatigue is going to come out. You still remember the, the answer you have to give us today. The question we asked yesterday was, have you ever been tempted to sleep with somebody else. 
And for those who are not here, eight men said no. 27 men said yes. What was the statistic? 60 what? 67. 77. Yeah, it was a distinction. Eh? And women, 16 women said no. And 21 women said yes. It was a 57. It may be a mother that's go, but it's a pasty. <laughs> so that simply told us that we are deceived. Because you don't know where the yes came from, eh? And how strong is the yes getting? So Jesus now says, what is the next question for today? Yes. The next question for today is, what was happening in your marriage when you got tempted? So remember, you have to write the, your answer somewhere. Remember, it was a word or a sentence. Don't write, he went and spoke to his mother about me. And then I felt angry. I asked him, and he said he didn't. And I found the mother. And No, don't write that. One sentence. Ne? One sentence. I know some of you. You write the whole paragraph, and it's one sentence. Yes, ma'am. No, it's fine. If you answered no, you don't have to give any. <laughs> eh? No problem. Okay. For for we, we don't want experimental error again. Eh? We'll give everyone a paper. Even if you wrote no, just pretend to be scribbling something. So our assumption is this everyone is scribbling something. Don't assume that your partner is writing anything. But I gave you an advice yesterday. What did I say? Come with the, write it at. Because I knew that partners would be like. So what is the extent of marriage? One, according to the Bible, marriage is the blessed highest communion between people ends on earth. Ends on beyond the grave, there's no marriage. And people keep asking, so babes will meet in heaven. <laughs> Probably you will, eh? But clearly, according to Jesus, because the question is, who will she be recognized as his a wife or rather husband. Jesus says, ah, you don't understand, you're ignorant. There won't be such things in heaven. Are we okay? That the color you can read. Mark chapter 10 from verse 2. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? He replied, 
they said Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. Jesus replied, but at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God joined together, let men not separate. When they were in the house again, the disciple asked Jesus about this. He answered, Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Hmm. And you know what's funny? When you read it in the account of Luke, then they say to him, hey, then it's better not to marry. Don't worry, we'll get to that point. Have you, have you come across that? They say, then it's better not to marry. And then Jesus says, no, 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 no. People are gifted differently. So now, here's the thing. Jesus says, it was never God's intention, one, for people to marry a, what do you call it, polygon. In the beginning, God intended for one man to be married to one woman. Because divorce or a third person was not part of God's plan. I'm sure we are still answering some of the things as we go along. And then they, 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 they ask him about, so what happens if there's a divorce? He says, no, divorce came as a result of you. Your hearts were hard. Now, here's a question I need to ask all of us today. Remember, I gave you four reasons why your marriage can break. He says your hearts were hard. Ne? Here's my question. I, I gave you ignorance. I gave you disobedience. I gave you a flawed character, immaturity. I gave you carnality. Where does the, a, a, a hard heart fall? Two, primarily disobedience, but disobedience that emanates from carnality. You understand that? Now, here's the question that I have. If Jesus says, your hearts are hard, that's why God, in his grace, allows divorce. Have our hearts become softer? Now, I'm asking you for your, the sake of your marriage now. So, in other words, what is Jesus telling them? He says, your hearts were hard, your hearts are hard, and therefore, you may never live in the blessedness of the covenantal marriage. Why? Because you want to obstinately work against God in your marriage. Are you still following? Now, we jump to Romans chapter 7. Are you there? Do you not know, brothers, I'm reading from verse 1, for I'm speaking to men who know the law, that the law has authority over a man as long as he lives. For example, by law, a married woman 
is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So then, if she marries another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress, even though she marries another man. Remember, now we are still helping you with the extent of marriage. Already we have said it doesn't happen in heaven. Now here on earth, most of us are culturally bound. Because according to you, when we marry Umakoti, she's a Makoti of them then. Of the whole family. And now, when you die, according to you and your family, they still have a say upon her life. But you see, the Bible says a different story. The Bible says, when you die, why? Remember. The covenant that says, until death do us part, was actually a herald of the possibility of you dying first, either one of you. So it says, until death do us part. And so when we part, the law of marriage is annulled. You understand? And therefore, from that point, nothing binds that person. I'm sure you, those of you who are on the side of culture, you are aware that you are not on the side of scripture. Here's another thing. Others are more on the side of personal principles. Ne? And these personal principles are not founded on scripture. Let me take a blow on one of them. And if you don't like the example, don't worry. We are friends. Ne? He's going out with her. You know there are times when two guys like the same girl. But they can't have her. Ne? And so he goes out with her. They dump each other. Ne? Let me phrase it as a question to cause confusion. Am I free to propose her? <laughs> yeah, that's why I phrase it as a, as a question to, to show you, to cause commotion. Yeah, you see, what I'm, what I'm, showing, I'm showing you now is that you are moved by a personal principle, not scripture. Scripture clearly already tells us there is no covenant between the two. That's point number one. Point number two, if it was intended, let's ask this question. If in God, she's the right one for me. How do you get to the conclusion that because they were not right for each other, then our rightness for each other is disqualified? How do you get to that conclusion? There's no scripture. It's just us feeling, ah, man, I can't go out with my friend's ex. That's a personal conviction. And as we say, when you have a personal conviction, no problem. Leave it your way, but don't impose it on others. 
Now, here's the thing that we then do in marriage. Babes, tell me, Mar, if I die, you will marry again. <laughs> hey, I'm not sure, you know. If you do get a poker, I will rise up. I'm sure those discussions have ensued here. Yeah. Have you read what the scripture just said? What does the scripture say? You have no right even to make such a claim. But you know how many people have entered even demonic areas of covenant of binding each other, even ritually? You, some of you know that. People have gotten into rituals of let us make a pact and they go to Sangomas and they do I padlock you if you marry somebody else. And then because you did not know the scriptures, you feel guilty for marrying and you're like, if I marry, I'm dishonoring my husband. Okay. When did the law of marriage end? How long has he been dead? So how long you mourn? It's a personal conviction. We must never impose what is not scripture on people. Hey, but you know how we're going to do it, I guess. Yo, after three months, they must have been going out before. Maybe she died. Maybe they killed her. Why, why don't you think it this way? Maybe the guy or the woman can't just deal with loneliness. Because they were so used to companionship and comradeship and covenant. And all of a sudden, all the beauty of the blessedness of marriage is taken by death immediately. And two months down the line, they realize, I cannot live without the blessedness of this state. I don't know how to be single anymore. Why can't you think of it that way? Why does it have to be true? They killed him. <laughs> and I'm not saying they have not killed him. <laughs> Actually, they may have killed him. The point I'm driving across to us is that let's stick to scripture. So that when we analyze what happens in people's lives, we don't impose our own convictions. So I agree, you see, the extent of the Marriage. No marriage beyond the grave. Marriage decides up to the death of the spouse. And when the, the law of marriage is broken, the individual is free. You won't marry for at least five years after I died. Die and when I marry. No, no, it's not that I know what I will do myself exactly. We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Remember, we're still talking about the extent for now, again. But remember, we said you must look at the extent, the roles, and the values. Now, as we read from now onwards, from 
the chapter that we're reading, we need you to look at the extent, how far does marriage go, to the responsibilities or roles and the values. Ne? I will highlight the values as we go so that you know what we are looking for. Now, for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to marry. So you know who's writing here. Is an unmarried man. But since there is so much immorality, where does immorality fall in our four reasons? In Kana, lead. Each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So you see what Paul is doing. He's taking us to God's original intention about marriage. You realize there was no blessing upon as they put Adam and Steve in, in the beginning. The blessing was upon Adam and Eve. So God's intention was never for two men to rule earth. He made it intentionally that it was a man and a woman at that point. So now it says, let's look at the responsibilities as we go along. The husband should fulfill his marital, marital duty to his wife. And likewise, the wife to her husband. Now, if you read, I think it's the King James, it says the conjugal duties. What are conjugal duties? It's not the washing of pots. So basically, the husband and the wife must duly give each other the sexual satisfaction that was accordingly blessed in chapter 1 of Genesis. It's still, sex is still tension, eh? <laughs> look, until you realize that it is a blessed state of marriage and it is the only thing you can do outside marriage, or rather you cannot do outside marriage, every other thing you can do with any other person. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent. And listen, I like this part. You must underline it in your Bible. Do not what? Deprive each other except by what? Mutual consent. And for what? And for a time. The scripture clearly defines and describes and exhibits God's wisdom beyond our practical experiences. God is on record saying, if you are depriving yourself sexually, you are heading for rocks. And I can bet you, I don't know how many times, at least we have done it. I don't know if Luna, you have done it, but I can stand there and say we have done it at least on the positive side of the scripture. Where we have gone, yeah, babes, we are fasting. Let's fast even, you know, the mighty clouds of joy and every other thing. <laughs> ne? But for greater percentages, it's never with mutual consent. And it is never for a time. It is for a prolonged time without consensus. 
Are you ignorant? Maybe you didn't know this scripture. Now you know it. From now onwards, it's up to the other three reasons now. Disobedience, immaturity, carnality. Are we still getting there? Don't worry. Don't say, yeah, but if, what if he, I don't get satisfied? I'm not reading anything about satisfaction so far. I'm just reading what the Bible says because we are talking about the theology of marriage as recorded in Scripture. Remember, we told you that in Scripture, sex is prescribed, not described. To the extent that you, the two of you do it, depends on your creativity. I gotta go and I feel I understand that. I wanna give you that. Okay, Fetari. So that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But remember, most of us can't pray together. So we don't even see how prayer and our sexual lives are intertwined. And I was saying to Dombo at one point, we need to teach our teenagers sexuality and spirituality. You can't separate the two. Because when God made man, he made him exactly like that. A spiritual being and a sexual being. And they gave him just the responsibility of working. We'll talk about that one day after we spoke with the teenagers. It says, then come together again. So that Satan will not tempt you because of your what? So the Bible does not presume what you are presuming about your spouse. You are the one suggesting that your spouse has a strong control against the flesh. The Bible says he or she possibly does not. That's why we had so many yeses yesterday. And it is your mutual fault. And then it says, I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all men were as I am, but each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried who are not here, there's nothing for us to say. Verse 10. To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. Ne? Let's jump. The rest you'll read for yourself. Then we get to that point where it says, verse 12, let me read it nevertheless. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer and is is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. Are you aware that most of our couples, sometimes people struggle to come to couples meeting because you have to come alone, your spouse is not here. Your spouse sometimes is not born again. The Bible says you must not Divorce him or her. And if a woman has a husband, I've read that. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, 
they are holy. But if the unbeliever lives, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. Do you hear what it says? Jesus said, divorce on crowns of immorality. Ne? And then here it says, on the basis of this question, what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? It says, if an unbeliever lives. Are you following? So, but when you can't divorce the unbeliever. I guess we're still dealing with the extent. And then here we go. Let's jump to verse 21. Were you a slave when you, you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For he who was a slave when he was called by the Lord is the Lord's free man. Similarly, he who was a free man when he was called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brothers, each man as responsible to God should remain in a situation God called him to. Now, this addresses a question where people say, so if God said I must marry one woman and I'm already married to two, what now? Should I divorce? The Bible says, in the state in which you are called, Stay. Obviously, then, there will come limitations to how far as, for instance, the Bible says if you want to be an elder, you must be a husband of one. So, which means, in your polygamous state, the Bible says stay married. Unfortunately, accept that that kind of life forfeits you the benefit of being an elder. Question. Does that stop you from operating in all the other gifts? Doesn't. Are you still following? So we can't say, eh, why is he prophesying but he's, he's a polygamist? Question. You are married now, right? You have one wife. According to what we have read, are you allowed to take a second wife? You are not. We have emphasized it so many times that from the beginning, one man, even now, Paul says, each man, each woman, are we still okay on that one? Okay, let's jump to the part that all of us like. I don't know if whether... Should we talk about visions? Eh? There's no point talking about visions here. <laughs> or... Uh, We should pass on, eh? <laughs> Verse 32. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. 
But a married man is, uh, is concerned about the affairs of this world. You see, it says marriage is the affair of this. Why? Because beyond the grave, there isn't any. How he can please his wife and his interests are divided. Now, friends, I want you to realize something. I, where I was making notes, I just, you know, highlighted with an asterisk that. Isn't it amazing that in the Bible, the emphasis of the responsibility of a spouse is the welfare of the other spouse, not all these other externalities that we have made primary. Are you aware that the Bible does not make a man's role as a, as a provider a priority? It doesn't even say he's concerned about what his wife will eat or not eat. It says he is concerned about how to please her. If eating constitutes pleasing her, the Bible puts that mandate and command on a man. But have you realized that all our concerns are nothing of what the Bible says? A man's concern is no longer his wife. I mean, let's all be honest. Our marriages, remember, break because of what? Ignorance, disobedience, immaturity, carnality. Clearly, if you don't know that the Bible says your only allowed and rather divided attention is when it is God and pleasing your wife. If you are ignorant, can you imagine how many other women here, including mine, don't worry, it's not just yours, cry foul when it comes to there are needs being met. Your wife may not tell you how deeply she hurts about the fact that you do not make it your priority to please her. Okay, let me talk to myself because I won't look as sad as you look. Your wife... My wife. No, I want to address me as the next person. Friends, think about it. How many other things, you know, if we can ask every woman here, how many other things do you compete with for your husband's time? Did you hear that chorus? But it doesn't end there, does it? It says about a married woman. It says, but a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in an undivided attention. So he says, Luna, people who are not married, don't get married. Almost like saying to them, because I know you people, you won't fulfill the requirements of marriage. The requirements of marriage are the married 
have their divided attention between pleasing the Lord and pleasing their spouses. And how guilty are we all? Where do complaints come from? Complaints come from hope deferred makes the heart grow sick. How many things have you asked that you are still waiting for? On both sides. Who's charming who now? Don't blackmail him. Now, let's go back to the reasons. Can you imagine if I was ignorant until this moment? What's going to be my reason now for taking my marriage down the drain still? Again, I'm no longer ignorant. I'm aware that my spouse is not supposed to compete with my job, with TV or soccer or movies or soapies or whatever you your husband or wife compete with. And if you guys stay away from each other, from the blessed communion, it must be by mutual and for a time. And when you pray, well, obviously, when you are away, that's a different case because some things you can't carry in your Verse 39, a woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes. But, now here's the part that is important. He must belong to the Lord. Which means, people think we are being funny when we say, when you are a widow and you come to us and you bring a vulture and you want to get married to one, if we tell you, no, 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 we can't officiate a marriage between a child of God and a vulture. You take an offense. Yeah, somebody left the church. Why? If I was to say uh, the name, people like uh, Pamela would know when we still have and say, because, uh, yeah, no, 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 no. Because the Bible says he must be born again. And then, the same teaching you must take to the young adults. That they are unmarried, right? If they were to marry, guess what? The person must be in the Otherwise, we are not involved. Are we being funny? No. We're just sticking to what the Bible says. Now we are in Ephesians chapter 5. We will come back to some few more scriptures. Okay, maybe let's start with 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where we all have been stuck for many years. Verse 
First Corinthians chapter 11, I'm reading from verse 3, it says, Now I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Ne? Now, this scripture, without many other scriptures, already tells you that there is no gay marriage in the Bible. The head of a man is not another man who's a flesh. The head of a man is Christ. Now, can you imagine? The head of Steve is John. No. Can you follow? So here's the thing, Mazana. So the practice of marriage, from what we said, marriage must be entered in comradeship, in companionship, in covenant. Ne? Marriage must be entered by a man and a woman. Right? And when they enter marriage, by virtue of entering marriage, marriage is an institution that actually precedes you and I. Right? So you and I look forward to getting married. So marriage defines us and our roles. We don't define it. So now it says when you enter into marriage, the husband, the man becomes the husband. And the one who has the title of the husband also has the title of the head and the responsibility of that. So what does the head do? God speaking of Abraham, he says, he will guide his family and his children in the fear of the Lord. So which means he must give direction and all these other things we've talked about before. The doctrine issues, the discipline issues. He must actually, the part I want to emphasize is that he must give vision. But like I said, most of our marriages don't have vision. We... we we fight because we don't have a common goal. When we have a common goal, a common goal demands of us to take the best out of each other. Can you imagine? Let me give you an example. Can I give an example? Because I'm going to give an example that we may have to discuss. At one point, we sat and said, as part of the vision of this marriage, one of the things that we need to do is to have financial freedom, right? Which means we must walk away from consumptive debt to investment debt, right? Now, suppose now I like spending. I'm an impulsive spender. And she's a rigid accountant. No, no, that one is a, is a Mrs. Mr. Flowing. Now watch. We have a goal, right? This goal is going to demand that the impulsive spender must be restricted. Now, I cannot start throwing 10 trams now. Why? Because my commitment is the vision that is set before us. And you know, it's funny. In other marriages, in mostly it's women. Not, not an offense. They throw tantrums. 
No, I don't have this. Yeah, but you remember, we are no longer competing with the Jones. We are setting ourselves a target of the next five years, how we want to be. You understand that? The restrictive accountant must be liberated to make us live, not just endure. So there has to be a balance. But that balance has to fall within this thing called budget. Yeah, but if there's no vision, a budget is not going to work. So even me and even you, you will have to go and rethink, what is the vision of this marriage? You know, if I was to die now, what would my wife be wishing would be happening? You know, when you, when you, when you watch those movies, in fact, it was not a movie, we were watching Grand Designs. I don't know if most of you watch Grand Designs, one of my favorite. You remember the, the, the episode where the lady was building a house after the husband has passed away? And she was like, if he was here. And, and she starts crying. She talks about how they visualize this. You see where they could already see what lies ahead. And even as she lived her life, she was left with something to live for. There was a legacy of their marriage. But I can assure you, many of us, if you die, your wife is going to miss the fact that troubles are lesser. Because she's no longer used to a trouble-free life. You know that type of thing? Where people say, you know, we always fought. And he would do this, he would do this. But now I miss him. Because there's no one to fight with. The house is quiet. Are you following what I'm saying? Now, here's the most important part of this whole aspect. is the fact that the wife, the Bible calls her a suitable helper. Ne? When there's no vision, there's no clarity about help. Because there's no goal where we're going. Ne? Hence, it's a problem for most of us here. You and your wife, and I asked you, God says you are one in flesh and one in spirit. But you are pursuing the oneness in flesh only. You are not pursuing oneness in spirit. So there's no one accordedness. And when we now talk about, let's do this, you cannot agree on spiritual things. Unfortunately, vision emanates from spiritual foresight. When people don't see what God wants to do through their lives, they have nothing to commit to. And that is why there's such emptiness amongst us where, like I told you, in your top ten list of the best Christians that you trust with your life, your spouse is not there. Mine is there. And I told you, this, I have so many testimonies of when my wife prayed for me. And, I, and I'm not ashamed to say, babes, pray for me. Pray for me. Pray for me. Sometimes she wakes up and you just say, but I pray for him. What, 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 what. And I listen. When they pray for you, you must listen very carefully. <laughs> what are the concerns that have been directed to the father?
And so friends, we can define ourselves in many ways. We can say of a husband, he's a protector, he's a provider, he's all the peace that you want. Ne? We can say all the C's, the caregiver, the what what about the woman. Whatever definition and roles you give. Here's the bottom line. The Bible says the husband is the head. The wife is the helper. And I think we struggle with that. Eh? And we struggle for two reasons. Heads don't know how to head except the ball. If you give him soccer ball, give him marriage to head. Instead of heading it, he heads but it. You know what is to head but? Not head but, not like this is to head but someone. <laughs> now here's a question. And don't answer it, eh? ladies. Because I don't want to hear my, what my wife is going to say. How is your husband heading your family? How's your husband leading? Are you short of giving him a vote of no confidence? <laughs> a recall, yes. <laughs> and can I be honest with you? For me, when I sit with my wife sometimes, it hurts when your wife says, but this and this and this and this, right? But here's the reality. No one are you going to hate except her. And if you receive feedback positive to your headship, it can never come from anywhere else but this one. And if you can't receive this one, and I can I tell you, maybe I'm not, you are not like me, but now I'm an egotist. Sometimes when my wife tells me something, you won't see it here. But inside, there's a storm. <laughs> but then God is good. Eh? God, he knows we are foolish sometimes. And so sometimes he quietens me and says, she knows how best to be led. You are just leading. You are not following. You see, when you are not following, you can walk fast. Have you ever driven behind someone and you are following them? And they are just, I mean, they see ember, and they pass. <laughs> and you think. And when you have to cross the red traffic light, you, you know that thing. And then the next thing, they overtake. It's a curve. You can't overtake. Hey, before long, you think I'm lost. You see the lights, the hazards there. As soon as they see you. I think some of us lead our wives like that. Hey, hey, Javas, don't look like that. You are not the only one. If it comforts you, there's two of us in that category. And the rest that are laughing, don't know. They are not laughing at the two of us. They are laughing at themselves too. Because there's no point in you thinking, I'm a good head. When it is your analysis. It only makes sense 
when the one led is telling you, my husband, you're leading very well. I don't know how that's going to come. Because as you well know, sometimes we, we lack tact. Eh? <laughs> you want to tell him or you can improve. And you say, you know, I met this guy today. I wish you saw him. <laughs> the way he was holding his wife. <laughs> I wish you could see. That's a terrible way of telling your husband anything. <laughs> sometimes... When we want to help each other, when a husband wants to get the wife to help, we use comparative language. Ne? Unfortunately, comparative language does not bring competence. It brings defense. And so almost either way, you always do that. And then, I don't know my wife, I won't tell them. <laughs> you know your wife can expect you to be a pilot. But you know the pilot's wife is not expecting him to be you. Your wife can say, hey, Mwak, you don't know how to fix a car. And at this guy, the staff he works with, doctor cannot. Of course, his wife compares him with something else. Ish, I wish you were what? Doctor, what do they wish you were? <laughs> I, wish you, I wish I was a little bit taller. I, 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 I wish you I wish you were you were Will Smith. Yeah. And this is the language we use. And in our minds, we are achieving the goal. Can I advise you? You are not. You are not achieving the goal. Because if you want me to be what somebody else is, you are saying, I must now check what I am. And as soon as you use that language, guess what? I push my defense. In the same way that you do. Lantarek, you realize it's not fair for me to look at my wife and think she was like who? Tandek. <laughs> or, or like my, my, my family member there. Did you all know that me and the are family? Anyway, let's leave it. You understand those type of things? And people start like, Comparative language is going to kill your marriage. You, you must hear, listen to the, the feedback about your head, sheep. Ne? But the one who gives feedback must not use comparative or demeaning language. In the same manner, you must be a suitable helper. But the one who helps you to suitably help him, must not use derogative language and demeaning language. I, Magwana, you are useless. Are we still okay? So in a sense, what does headship mean? It means ultimately, 
all things discussed and what? One person has to make a decision. That's primarily what it means. And people struggle with that. You don't have to struggle with the fact that you chose to be married. And when you chose to be married, you gave somebody the right to make the final decision when there's no agreement. And so you are being unscriptural when you say, yes, he knows we agree to disagree. You are not in marriage. You are somewhere in the bundus, in the bush. In marriage, there's no agree to disagree because there's a head. That may sound sad, but that's just how it is. And getting married was your choice. Let's read the last two portions of Scripture. Ephesians. I'm just going to read through those ones. Ephesians chapter 5, as you well know. Number one, let's read from verse 21. It says what? Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Which means when we are given roles, there must always be submission. Because even if authority is delegated, it must still be submitted to. Have you realized that other guys say, my wife, you are the one who is responsible for the house. But they ask him, Babes, can you please wash the dishes? Who delegated the authority of running the kitchen? The husband, right? But he's not aware that even delegated authority has to be submitted to by those who delegated it. Go to lesson day. Let me give an example. How many of you are life group leaders here? You are a life group leader. How many of you have had elders visiting your life group? How many of you still led even if the elders were there? Why? Because you are the authority of that life group. As an elder, I come, yes, with a mantle of eldership. But I have delegated you. I will only intervene if there is something wrong that you are doing. But in the absence of any error, if you say, Bazaran, let's jump, I jump. If you stand here on Sunday and say, let's lift our hands, you never see the elder say, we direct the affairs of the church. Lift up your hands, 